of the Meaning of Health podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Craig. And my name's Courtney. And we're from the University of Western Australia's School of Population and Global Health. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about something interesting um, that affects everybody in the world. That's uh, right. It's very important. So what's our topic today, Courtney? So we are going to be talking about uh, prevention of diseases. So obviously that's a really broad topic. So we're going to be covering uh, the different types of prevention as well as some examples using different diseases. Uh, and the, the first topic that I think we're going to talk about is uh, infections, which is a really good segue because... As you might have noticed, I am sick right now, so obviously I haven't uh, gone through these uh, prevention tactics that maybe we should have done. So, uh, Craig, did you? Should we first maybe go through um, what primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention is yeah, before we get into the diseases? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. What I was going to suggest though is that we do have a uh, correction to make from our oh, that's previous right. podcast. Yes, um, I made a mistake. <laughs> well, I think you made a mistake, and I and I perpetuated the mistake after you've made it. Um, so we ref were referring to a, a psychiatric disorder manual called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is up to version 5 now. And we refer to it as a psychological disorder manual. Um, when That's it's actually right. pu published by the Psychiatric Association of America. So. Yeah, so uh, you might have noticed in that episode I corrected Craig saying actually it's the Psychological Association and uh, I was incorrect. Uh, so <laughs> I'm glad that we can now cover that and make sure it is correct uh, for all of our audience. Yeah, and <laughs> it just reminds us all that we, we, we're studying this as well. So we are all still learning. So if you do pick up any mistakes that we make, please feel free to send us a, a tweet or a private message or something, uh, and we will do our best to make sure that um, anything that needs clarifying is clarified. Absolutely. Um, I think that's a very good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and also, before we get into the, the actual podcast, we do have a couple of special episodes planned for the next month or so um, because, Courtney, you're heading overseas, aren't you? I am. So I am very lucky in that I am going to Paris for a bit for a cardiac conference mm. and I'm hoping to get a couple of guests from there. So there might be some uh, cardiovascular disease-related podcasts coming up. Okay. Excellent. Yeah, and I'm actually going to be heading to Melbourne for a Corrective Services Health Conference. Uh, so I'm planning on um, interviewing a special guest from Melbourne whilst I'm there as well. Uh, so interesting times ahead. That's right. And if we can't deliver, we'll let you know as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we're hoping that there won't be an interruption to the schedule. So we're hoping to keep releasing podcasts even though we're going to be away. Uh, we hope to keep make, making sure that they come out. That's right. All right, now on to today's show. Excellent. All okay. right. So um, the first thing, as I said, I think we should cover is primary, secondary and tertiary mm -hmm. prevention. So we've all got a bit of background about what's happening. So my understanding is that, that primary prevention is all about improving the overall health of the general population, um, preventing that first occurrence of disease. So it's stopping people from getting the flu or stopping people from getting um, different chronic diseases, that kind of thing. Uh, and then there's also secondary and tertiary. Do you want to mm -hmm. explain what they are? Yes, yeah, so secondary, my understanding is that once somebody has contracted a disease, that they have that disease treated so that it's cured, if you like, or it's stopped, uh, so it doesn't progress any further. Uh, so that could be like giving someone antibiotics once they've got a, an infection. 
um, to clear up the infection. Uh, and then tertiary is once someone's got a disease that's never likely to be successfully cured or treated, is managing that disease so it doesn't get worse. Um, and palliative care is one form of um, one form of that for people who have certain cancers. Yeah, and I was also thinking of um, rehabilitation as well for a lot of conditions. Yeah, so people who might have had a stroke or yeah. something like that. Yeah, so they're always going to be affected. That that scar tissue is always going to be there, but. There's ways of reducing um, the the burden or improving the quality of life for those yeah. those patients. That's what tertiary is all about. Yeah. Um, so our focus today is going to be on primary. So it's going to be trying to stop people from getting sick in the first place. Um, yeah, that's right. And I think that's kind of the the whole deal with this podcast as well. As you know, we are from from public health and population health. So uh, a lot of people focus on that primary prevention uh, where we work. So it's it's much more prominent in what we do. Yeah. And it doesn't always get the headlines, does it, that some of the other types of prevention get? Yeah, exactly. So um, what we kind of found out is that not much money at all is is given to primary prevention or or health promotion when, in fact, that might be a really good way of stopping the disease and um, not having to go through all the treatments, which could be really expensive. Yeah, people are looking for the cure for cancer and the cure for AIDS and these sort of things, which gets the headlines, it sounds good. Uh, but in reality, uh, those diseases affect a, a very small percentage of the population um, and a, a much bigger percentage of the population could be affected by not getting those, you know, not getting sick in the first place. That's right. Prevention. If we could stop it, that'd be so much a more quality of life and it'd be better. <laughs> yeah, not to mention potential cost savings as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So as part, as part of the, the research for this episode, we had a look at there's a government plan for research funding in Australia for the next 10 years called the Medical Research Future Fund. Uh, and what we found is that around 5% of the total $5 billion budget over that 10 years has been set aside for prevention research. The other 95% is for other things, other programs, some of them, you know, research into finding cures for things, uh, research into setting up infrastructure to try and strengthen our health system. Um, but I thought it was interesting that it was such a small figure for prevention research. And that, that full 5% would be for all of the infrastructure and things that we'd need for, for health promotion and, and primary prevention. Um, so in reality, we could almost see that 95% going towards secondary and tertiary um, and all of the other things that includes. So at the moment, it doesn't seem like there's a huge focus on uh, preventing these diseases rather than uh, curing it and figuring out what happens after someone's got that disease. Yeah, you know, and I think there's good reasons for that because when people do get sick, which does happen, they want to know that there is a treatment available and that does take a lot of time and money and effort to, to research, um, whereas prevention might be a slightly simpler thing to research and also to apply. And it's also, uh, my personal opinion, I think uh, a lot of primary prevention relies on um, the person being quite active in their their state of mind as well. So uh, uh, we'll we'll get into this a little bit more when we go into the specific conditions, but, yeah, your primary prevention really relies on that person being active in their their health. Yes, so being motivated to manage their own health and reduce their own risks of getting these diseases and illnesses. All right, so why don't we jump into some of the vaccination programs, which is a primary prevention for infectious disease, so diseases that can be passed between people and animals. Yep, yeah. that's right. And I think um, 
one of the more controversial ones at the moment, uh, particularly with the high flu season that we've had this year, is that flu vaccination. Uh, and what I find really interesting about it is they try and predict the most common forms of flu uh, or viruses or, or bacteria or whatever it is. Um, they try and predict that for the, the next year and sometimes we get it wrong um, or sometimes there's a different one that, that pops up and those vaccinations don't quite work as well as we thought they would. Um, but if we didn't have those vaccinations, we would have more people affected with lower quality of life. Right. And I think everybody that's listening would have been vaccinated for something at some point unless they're in that very tiny category of people whose parents don't believe in vaccination and um, that's a whole other issue probably for another uh, episode. Yeah, that's definitely another another podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so measles, measles, measles mumps and rubella, um, hepatitis B, Diphtheria, tetanus, whooping cough. Uh, these are all things that routinely people get vaccinated for, usually as children, and often there's two or three injections over a course. Uh, and what we've found is that there's been a massive reduction in um, rates of infection for those things in the community. Yeah, definitely. Um, but there's the really good example of polio as well. Um, we've, I think, have we eradicated polio? It's close. Almost. I think, Almost. Yeah, I think in um, 2018 there were 33 cases. Uh, worldwide compared to 350,000 cases in 1983. 33 cases worldwide. That's yeah. that's crazy. That's like no one. So until it's zero, um, theoretically it's still a risk, but obviously this, we don't see people um, suffering the effects of polio the same way we used to. People would have sort of disfigured legs and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and that, and that was because of our, our primary prevention with that vaccination is that someone uh, created this vaccination that could uh, pre- prevent it from happening. Yeah. Um, and we managed to... I think there's actually multiple forms of the vaccination, so it's uh, it can be implemented in third world countries as well really easily. Uh, so obviously someone's thought about this very carefully and tackled it from all sides that they could uh, right. for polio. And the, the way that works is the less people carrying the disease, the less people there are out there able to infect everybody else. And so over time, the more people that are vaccinated that don't have it, you know, the numbers of people getting infected just fall exponentially over time. And that's why we've seen 350,000 down to 33 in the space of 30 years. It's a massive fall. Yeah, it is. And that's the idea of uh, herd immunity, isn't it? So herd immunity is all about um, you've got a group of people and if the majority of them can't get that disease or, or they're immunised or things like that, it's significantly less likely that that condition will uh, go through that population because just not many people can get it. And it means that small population that can't get the vaccine or um, are susceptible to the disease are less likely to get it. Yeah. And we've seen in recent times uh, diseases like Ebola pose a serious threat to, the, to humans um, because they're highly infectious diseases and the... Uh, rate of death is extremely high and and the time to death is extremely quick in cases where people do die. Um, but some interesting news on that in the last couple of weeks is that they think they might have found a, a an effective treatment for Ebola. Which is awesome Yeah, because um, it's definitely necessary. I think it's kind of fallen off the news a bit because it's, uh, it's not slowed down, but it's just not new news anymore. Yeah. Um, and but, it, yeah. And it tends to happen in a part of the world <clears throat> where that goes unnoticed, you know, in Western Africa and, and other parts of Africa, Central Africa. Uh, but they, they think they've found a, a treatment that's 90% successful. Oh, that's so, awesome. Which that would essentially eradicate that disease over time. Yeah, and that would help 
with herd immunity because the less people would have it because you can go through that treatment. So therefore that disease can't spread as, as far as it has been doing. That's it. Um, so that's as far as infectious diseases go. So those are the diseases that we pass to each other as, as humans. Uh, what about some of those diseases that we don't pass to each other, that just happen inside each person? Yeah, so uh, there's the one side, the infectious diseases, and then there's the non-communicable diseases, or um, I tend to call them chronic diseases. And these include things like cardiovascular disease or diabetes or cancer or things like that. So you won't necessarily get it off someone, um, but it is something that develops over time. And, of course, this has uh, primary prevention for it as well. But the thing is, the primary prevention for these diseases is all about lifestyle factors. So um, this is where your modifiable and non-modifiable risk factors come in. So unfortunately for all these kinds of diseases, you've got your non-modifiable risk factors, which are things you literally can't change. Um, That could be your height, because your height increases your risk of cancer if you're taller. Um, Also your age. So the older you get, the more likely you'll get all of these different chronic conditions. Um, Your sex as well. So whether you're male or female uh, at birth, that will uh, change your risk of getting diseases. So those are ones you can't change. Primary prevention for these diseases are looking at tackling the ones you can change. And for a lot of these diseases, that's uh, it'll be BMI or uh, how overweight you are. Uh, it can be your physical activity. It can be your diet. So there's, there's still things that we can tackle for primary prevention for these conditions. Yeah. And I think as, a, as an example, we've listed three fairly common chronic diseases there. Um, so cardiovascular disease, which is a group of diseases that, yep. <laughs> that you, you know a lot more about sure than do. I do. Um, diabetes <laughs> and, and kidney disease. And these, these things often happen um, concurrently. So people often will experience multiple of these at the same time. Yeah, and it's, it's also kind of people might not realise they have these diseases as well. So uh, a lot of these can be asymptomatic for a while and you have this condition and then suddenly something flares up and all three diseases uh, appear at once or that's what it feels like. But in reality, you've probably been affected by it for a little bit before then right. as well. And and they really are, I guess, termed loosely as lifestyle-type diseases, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, that's um, right. And, uh, so uh, what I found interesting was... Uh, in Australia in particular, for example, with cardiovascular disease, uh, 18% of people are affected by cardiovascular disease. And the issue is the majority of that could have been prevented and it could have been prevented by um, tackling our lifestyle, uh, physical activity, diet, things like that. So, yeah, they're they're considered as lifestyle diseases. Mm. And I I think Australia has been a bit of a leader in tackling some of these diseases in terms of its smoking policies, tobacco control, uh, even our drink alcohol awareness campaigns about the safe levels of drinking and um, trying to cut down people's um, you know, unsafe and unhealthy levels of drinking, which yeah. are you know, pretty ingrained in our culture historically. It'd be difficult to completely eradicate, I think. <laughs> yeah, and, th- and those things do come up uh, frequently in the risk factors, don't they, for communicable Yeah, absolutely. Diseases, um, for non-communicable diseases. Yeah, so I think one of the things that I think is the, the, the biggest thing that Australia has done for primary prevention is smoking. Uh, Australia is just has been fantastic in what we've done with uh, reducing smoking. So uh, back in 2001, 
apparently there was about 24% of people that had smoked and in 2014-15 that's gone down to 15%. Uh, we have this fabulous woman, I've forgotten her name, but she works in the Department of Health and she was basically the pioneer for uh, tackling smoking as a, a lifestyle factor and she has just done wonders for Australia. Our rates have reduced and therefore uh, because smoking is related to so many chronic diseases, um, our rates of those diseases have decreased as well because we've reduced smoking. Yeah, and pati- particularly in the the cardiovascular. Yeah, group, absolutely. Right? Yeah, there's there's been some uh, really big reductions in heart disease, and one of those is because we've reduced smoking. Yeah, and I think that uh, that's probably a, a topic for another podcast on its own. The yeah. whole smoking debate about. Um, smoking policy and, you know, now with a new challenge of vaping coming in. Yeah, we need know. to write these ideas down. We've yeah. already come up with two more. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's, there's a lot of divided opinions on that and that, that we'll park that to one side and, yeah. and definitely address that in a, in a future podcast. But it is interesting as a primary prevention tool, you know, some of these awareness campaigns and things like making smoking so expensive that a lot of people can't afford it anymore. Um, and same with drinking. You know, there's a lot of tax on alcohol in this country and um, very strict rules about where alcohol can be served and how it's promoted. Um, so it, it is an interesting area. Mm, absolutely. Um, the other thing that I think is interesting, and I'm sure uh, most Australian listeners have seen this now, is the, the toxic fat campaign by Live Lighter. Um, that is obviously a, a primary prevention as well. They're trying to make people reduce the amount of sugar and, and fat that they're eating because those have been linked to increase in uh, chronic diseases. Yeah, those are quite confronting, those ads, when you see someone go into a petrol station. Oh, they're so gross. <laughs> and, and he looks at the, the pie warmer and then the next thing there's all this fat kind of... Yeah, all the, the yellow screen. stuff. Yeah, it's so gross. And but then, uh, the, in terms of media, like, that's the way to, to scare people into losing Weight, yeah, so I mean, that's, to work. that's another topic for a <laughs> for a podcast is is how health is promoted and and whatnot. Because do do scare campaigns work? Do they not? You know, yeah, it's a big debate about right. that. Idea number three. Yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> moving swiftly along. So, did you have anything else to add on the infectious? Uh, sorry, the uh, non communicable. Um, the third one I wanted to mention for primary prevention is. One of the things for heart disease at the moment is blood pressure. So although we've had decreases uh, in smoking and things like that, which reduces your your prevalence um, or the number of people that have heart disease, our blood pressure is increasing as a whole. And this is, again, because of diet and physical activity and things like that. People are, are not uh, as active. They're eating more uh, bad foods and things like that, which increases our blood pressure. So a lot of primary prevention for heart disease is to reduce that blood pressure. So uh, I wanted to mention this because uh, this was one of the few ones that I could find where taking a pill was actually a primary prevention. So a lot of people are on uh, on drugs that will lower your blood pressure. Even something simple like aspirin, right? Exactly, people yeah. Are... So yeah, a lot of people are on aspirin, which helps to reduce your blood pressure. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, high blood pressure or hypertension does contribute to a lot of these illnesses, doesn't it? Yeah, so um, even just a little bit of 
about my research, um, I'm looking at people with atrial fibrillation and between 40 and 60% of those people will have hypertension, which increases your risk of getting every other form of heart disease as well. So as soon as you've got hypertension, that's something that is very obvious that we can tackle to reduce your risk of actually getting heart disease. Okay. And when, when you refer to atrial fibrillation, what does that actually mean for people who might not understand? So uh, in simple terms, I explain it as uh, when your heart starts beating really funny. Uh, so uh, basically there's some abnormalities in your electrical circuit in your heart and your your heart will not produce a normal heartbeat. It will do something different. Right. And, and what can be the results of that? Like what does that put you at risk of in terms of outcomes? Literally every other heart disease possible. So the one I'm looking at is heart failure, but it increases your risk of stroke as well. Um, people are thinking that it might increase your risk of things like dementia. Uh, there's a, a huge amount of consequences for, for getting something like that. Okay. So that's a, it's a massively important area moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And the, the only other thing that came to mind for me when I was looking into this um, podcast uh, was cancer because that's a, an area where primary prevention is is huge, isn't yeah, it? And, we've, and if listeners are interested, they can go back to episode one that we did on screening where we pretty much just focused on cancers because th- that's the majority of our screening programs are to try and um, find out when people have pre-cancers so we can stop them getting full cancers. Yeah, exactly. So screening is um, one of our biggest primary prevention uh, techniques, uh, not just for cancer, but for other conditions as well. Um, I think there are some screening techniques for cardiovascular disease, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that is that is one of the, the main forms of prevention that we can go through. Yeah. And as we sort of covered in that episode, there's this lifestyle factors that can con- contribute to people getting cancer as well, or increasing their risk of getting cancer. And uh, things like um, smoking and drinking and being inactive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also for some types of cancers, usually referred to as skin cancers, um, Overexposure to the sun. Of course, yes. Yeah, so we have a lot of primary prevention um, to do with skin cancer because Australia and Australia's people are very good at getting skin cancer. Um, and of course, that would be, uh, for example, the slip slop slap campaign, um, the accessibility of sunscreen, things like that. Yeah. And having grown up in Perth in the 80s and the 90s, uh, SunSmart was very prominent as, yeah. a, as an organisation. Uh, and I think, were they part of the Cancer Council? Is that one of I their programs? I believe they are, yeah. 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 So we always used to get, you know, um, lectures at school about how many times a day you needed to reapply sunscreen and, you know, if you were going swimming then you had to reapply it more frequently and whatnot. Yeah, and I think at the moment there's also a, um, at schools there's a no hat, no play rule that's uh, in Western Australia at least and I think the majority of public schools kind of have to follow that as well. So, yeah. again, that's a, a prevention tactic yeah. for skin cancer. And uh, I'm not actually across the skin cancer statistics but I'd be interested to know if, if, they have, if skin cancers have gone down. I think I think this is the issue again with screening. I don't think they've gone down, but I think in terms of deaths they have. So I think we're detecting more, uh, we're cutting out more, um, but there's uh, we're getting better quality of yeah. life because less people are affected by it. They instead okay. just get a cut out and they're okay. So the screening is leading to more effective secondary prevention. Exactly. Basically. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, so. If you didn't have anything more on non-communicable diseases, then I was going to move on to another area which is increasing in importance and in 
media coverage as time goes on, and that's mental illness. Yep, absolutely. Um, which is a bit of a interesting one as far as prevention goes, isn't it? It, it is. It's this one. When I was researching it, I found it difficult to to classify um, what exactly would be primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention for mental illness, and that's because mental illness is a, a very complex area. Um, and to be honest, we don't have uh, many of the definitions even set in stone for the, these conditions. So um, we need to be able to do that before we can even classify things into primary and secondary prevention. Yep. Um, but that doesn't mean we haven't had a go at it. <laughs> so um, some of the things that I came up with for, for primary prevention of mental illness was really tackling those um, social expectations. So you can increase, uh, sorry, you can decrease poverty and social exclusion, and that will more likely um, increase resilience in people and reduce that risk of mental illness. Okay. Uh, And aside from that, there are certain biological factors at play for some mental illnesses as well. Um, So in particular for schizophrenia, they've done genetic testing on lots of people who've been diagnosed with schizophrenia and and other psychotic illnesses, and they found there there are certain genes that do get passed from generation to generation that increase the risk of someone experiencing that. Um, That's really interesting, uh, and I guess uh, knowledge is power because these days we do have the ability to test for these sort of things to know who is at risk and then what the other risk factors might be. And for schizophrenia in particular, um, consuming cannabis is one of those things that can uh, cause someone to have an episode, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that goes again to, to screening is that we now have this ability to do genetic screening and um, I think there's even at-home kits now. Uh, not that I know how reliable they are, but they are definitely available. But you can get genetic testing done to see what you are potentially at risk for and schizophrenia, there's definitely a genetic component to that. Yeah, okay. And then you sort of mentioned there social factors, so social exclusion and that sort of thing. So just going back to that quickly, um, yeah, things like anxiety, so generalised anxiety disorder and depression, to to use some of the terms that you might find in the DSM-5. That we now know what it stands for. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So those things are, are fairly fluid concepts, aren't they? You know, where someone grows up, the family situation they're in, you know, what school they're at. Um, what sort of education level they've they've got to, um, and then in following on from that, what socioeconomic kind of prospects they have, you know, what sort of job they're going to get, how well that's going to be paid, what sort of pressures they're going to face in their life. Those things all kind of, they sort of gel together to create an environment that may lead to someone becoming depressed or anxious. Yeah, and I think it's, it's important to know now... Um you know, even if you you do come from not the best of a family space or um, lower socioeconomic status or, or anything like that, that doesn't mean that you are going to get mental illness. It, it increases your risk, but if you have very high resilience or things like that, um, that can also reduce your risk. So, so the things that we're talking about here are things that might potentially lead to these diseases rather than saying you will get it. Okay. So, yeah... Always just talking about risks rather than exactly yeah than causes or um, but yeah all of the things that you, you mentioned Craig uh, they all kind of help each other out as well so they're all influencing each other and um, one of the the big ones that I've learnt about 
by doing psychology is uh, trauma. So as soon as a, a child experiences trauma, that increases their risk greatly of a lot of these mental conditions. And trauma can be literally anything. It doesn't have to be something physical. Um, it could be something with... I wish I had better words to say this, but it could be something that they've manifested in their head as well, and that could be a trauma to them, which increases their risk. So there's so many things that we need to learn about with mental illness, um, but there are things that we can that, that that we can track and that we can improve on to reduce the prevalence of these conditions. And I think we were talking before a little bit about the concept of primary, secondary and tertiary prevention in the context of mental illness, maybe not fitting as neatly as it does in some of the other diseases that we're talking about. Yeah. Illnesses. Yeah. And that, that's because we don't really know when mental illness starts. Um, it's not like one day you wake up and go, oh, I have depression now. Like that doesn't quite happen. Um we don't really know when it starts and that's also something to do with the definitions of the diseases. We don't really know too much about it. Um, so because of that, we can't really classify mm. things. And so some, just to use a, a fairly basic example, someone who might have a learning disability or some a condition like dyslexia where they struggle to read properly, uh, that could maybe impede their education um, and then in later life, that lack of education leads to a reduction in opportunities for yeah, employment. Absolutely, maybe but a lower income. Yeah, and there, there's a couple of things that can influences that influence that as well. So, uh, for example, with learning disorders, if that person, um, for example, has a high IQ or is, is quite smart, even though they have a learning disability, um, they would compensate for that in some way and there'll be a point in their learning uh, that they would no longer be able to compensate and then suddenly it might come out. Um, but you might not be able to find it in young kids because they, they're learning in another way and they're achieving everything uh, as they should be but it's still there. So finding that point, uh, if you can find that learning disability earlier on, you can teach that kid to uh, come up with those skills compensation techniques uh, and then that would uh, increase like the quality of life and things like that later on. So I think what we're kind of alluding to there is there could be multiple layers of prevention because you can't stop someone from getting dyslexia if they if they have it. But not what, that we know of yet. No, not, <laughs> not that we know of. Um, but what you can do is implement some strategies to manage that to then hopefully prevent them from getting another mental health problem later on. Yeah, exactly. Like depression or anxiety because they, you know, are not getting ahead in life or whatever the case may be. And so we're sort of talking about layers of prevention there. So yeah. one condition could lead to another, but you're, in one instance, you're, you're kind of um, using secondary or ter tertiary prevention to enable the primary prevention of a, an ongoing Problem, yeah, right? that's exactly right. Yeah, and I on. think um, that's an issue for, for most mental illnesses as well is that, you know, if you've, uh, again, I'm generalising here, but if you've got one uh, potential mental illness, there's probably a couple of other factors uh, influencing that as well. So you'll find a lot of people have depression and anxiety um, and things like that. Mm. I did think of one example where it does fit in neatly to the, the primary prevention, secondary prevention, that classification, and that was uh, postnatal depression. Um, obviously there's things that influence that beforehand, but 
there is a there's a time period there where primary prevention can help, and that is education for the mother to recognise those postnatal depression symptoms, um, and therefore you can tackle it early on. So that was one where there was a, a time point uh, that does affect it. I guess hmm. that's interesting, and I think. Uh, that that is a really interesting area, and um, postnatal depression and postpartum psychosis, and some of these really extreme events that happen uh, after birth, uh, is a fascinating area that we are still trying to get our heads around. Um, but another thing that kind of struck me is a form of primary prevention against mental illness occurring is once again going back to our drug and alcohol type policies, um, because we do know that um, using certain drugs can increase your risk of getting depressed or having a psychotic episode or being anxious. And so those uh, those mechanisms where we kind of educate people on the risks of using things like cannabis, using alcohol in high doses, um, using other illicit drugs and illicit drugs, you know, like prescription painkillers and whatnot, um, that can lead to dependence, which is in itself actually classified as a, a mental health disorder if you're dependent on something that's in the DSM. Once again, our trusty friend. <laughs> We're slowly <laughs> um, learning more about it. <laughs> that's it. Um, but, yeah, I guess that is also a form of primary prevention and you know, helping people to, to either use drugs safely or to not use them at all, you know, in many cases, uh, in itself is a form of primary prevention because you're trying to prevent things like mental illness occurring later on that could are, are likely to be exacerbated by those sort of activities. So, yeah, I guess that's... And I think that's one of the areas um, that government's kind of struggling with currently to make sure the funding ends up in the right places and that those programs are targeted to the right people uh, so that they can, you know, make a difference. Uh, and the other areas are things like gambling uh, and excessive use of um, social media and using social media in a way that's pretty unhealthy, you know, like trolling and uh, bullying and stuff online. Yeah, that, that's a huge one at the moment and I think social media um, is probably going to be classified as a risk factor for, for mental illness. I don't think it has yet, uh, but there's definitely a lot of research happening around social media at the moment and it's, yeah, it, it's crazy how much that can influence your mental health. Mm. And I, I think the connection between your mental health and your behaviour is so is is so profound that, you know, ultimately what we're trying to do a lot of the time when we're talking about, some, especially some of these more severe mental illnesses, is to prevent suicide, which yeah, is the ultimate poor outcome or bad outcome, you know, from, from mental health problems. Um, so a lot of our government's efforts are, you know, sort of in that direction because suicide's the biggest killer of men under... A certain age, I think it might be forty. Or I think yeah, that's some, about right. Yeah, there. it's in young men. Yeah, young men mostly. So it's it kills more young men than anything else. Yeah. Um, um, just on a on a more positive note, though, um, I think here in Australia we're incredibly lucky that we can focus on primary prevention for mental illness because a lot of uh, uh, countries that are not as lucky as us are still focusing on things like HIV, uh, all those infectious diseases that are still wiping out their communities. So we have got some really good prevention uh, techniques here in Australia so we can focus on the ones that maybe we don't know as much about, which is awesome. Yeah. And I, and I think it is always interesting to look at the literature 
in third world or lower middle income countries compared to developed and Western countries. Um, and the incidence of mental illness is, or the, the rates of mental illness are far lower in those lower middle income countries than they are here. And I don't know if that's a fact of the fact that they've got more, you know, bigger problems in terms of communicable diseases and they don't have clean water a lot of the time in some of those countries, you know, just basic necessities, or whether they're more resilient than, than we are in the West. Um, but it's definitely an area... Uh, that's going to be interesting to to see in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a couple of things um, influencing the the prevalence of mental illness there. Um, But you did bring up one thing there that I think is the biggest primary prevention uh, technique that anyone has ever implemented, and that is sanitation. Uh, Sanitation basically changed the world uh, and increased... It's one of the few things that in, it, that has increased our um, length of life significantly compared to anything else. There's been no other treatment or anything that it has increased our life expectancy compared to sanitation. So sanitation was a massive one um, for humans and our development. And it's pretty much where epidemiology started, isn't it? That's right, with, with yeah. With Snow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't remember the story of Jon Snow, but he was the one who kind of came up with uh, clean water uh, as a sanitation. uh... Yeah, there was a natural experiment in in London and there was one pump and one tap that that came from a certain part, from a certain water supply and another one that came from a different one. And his theory was that the disease was being passed through one of these pumps. So he turned one of them off and he saw what happened. You know, there was a massive difference. So, yeah. yeah, but for people who are interested in that story, I've just brushed over it, but it's definitely worth having a look at online. Yeah, I think it was the 1700s. Yeah, it's a super interesting story and a very, very clever man, obviously. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, he was the one who kind of, I think he also, that he was influencing epidemiology as well. Um, but, yeah, he brought in this idea of sanitation and it's just, it's revolutionised yeah. our world. And we've seen it with medical uh Practitioners like surgeons uh, who didn't originally wash their hands to sterilise their hands often were infecting their own patients without even knowing. You know, there's been, there was a, a Hungarian scientist, I think, who came up with that theory who actually got hot, um, put in a mental hospital for suggesting it at the time. But since it's come out, it's transpired that he was actually right mm. uh, and it was the doctors that were infecting their patients. And I think it was in maternity hospitals in particular where it was happening. Oh, yeah, I think I've heard of that story yeah, as well. I, his, yeah. name, his name oh, escapes me right now. I but, am terrible with names as well. So yeah, mm. but it is a very interesting story and, you know, and, and how things develop. And sometimes people do have to come up with crazy ideas for us to explore them and then work out, oh, maybe they're not so crazy. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's just a couple more things I was going to talk about on the mental illness side. Um, one was there's often stories about people who've been... Uh, in parts of the world, you know, during wars, um, who you, you sort of touched on trauma before and the many forms that trauma can take and it could be emotional abuse all the way through to something traumatic happening to you physically like losing a leg or getting, you know, getting shot at or whatever. Um, and I think that uh, PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder is one of the things that is quite prevalent in our society uh, and the the group of people that often get cited in when we talk about PTSD, are people who've come back from the army uh, and the the treatments and whatnot that are available. Now, we can't really prevent PTSD. Unless we stop them from going through that traumatic experience, but yeah. honestly, that would be incredibly hard to do. Yes. So I think our, 
this is one of those mental illnesses where secondary and tertiary prevention really are the only real options once someone has had a traumatic experience. And I think every human that has ever lived has probably gone through traumatic experience to some degree. It's just that level of trauma is, yeah. is higher in some cases. Um, and there is some, for people that are interested, it's, there is some interesting research going on at the moment that is using MDMA, which is the active ingredient in ecstasy, during therapy sessions with people who have PTSD to get them to feel comfortable and relaxed enough to talk, to relive the, the traumatic moments in their own mind and talk about them and then come out of the other side without being re-traumatised as a way of helping them move forward and past that. And I thought that was just worth raising because I thought it was a really interesting That um, is really interesting because one of the things that I know about um, PTSD is that the more often that people talk about it, the more often that they'll relive it and the symptoms will actually get worse. So for a lot of people that have been to the army or come back, um, they, they don't talk about it at all because that's their way of coping. And then if suddenly someone starts making them talk about it, it gets worse and it can become quite debilitating. Um, so, yeah, that is super interesting as a, as a way of, I guess, is it reducing the emotion for it or...? I think so. I think it's in, like... It's helping them, giving them the tools to, to think about it, acknowledge it, and every time it comes up in the head to not be re-traumatised by it because they've discussed it pretty openly. They've had a, you know, they've done some therapy around it and so it's not such a, an issue that, that will re- repeat for them. You know, yeah, maybe that, they should uh, look at that for people with phobias. Possibly. Because uh, a lot of the, the, I guess, tertiary... Uh, prevention for phobias is literally exposing the person to what they're scared of, which, you know, there's a bit of an ethical debate there. Um, but that if you can reduce that uh, reaction, then that might be a good I, one. I know personally for me I'm, I'm, uh, I have a bad reaction if I see someone bleeding profusely. Oh, I, I feel okay. light, lightheaded and like I need to lie down and I'd probably faint if I didn't. And I've heard stories from friends who've been through medical school who there's a, a percentage of the class in first year that always has that reaction. Uh, and obviously they get trained, they're exposed to that enough during their training that they're not going to go into a hospital and collapse because someone came in with a snap leg or something like that. Uh, so it is interesting. You do get desensitised to these things over time. And I think maybe that is the theory behind this PTSD treatment is they get desensitised to the traumatic event the more that they kind of talk through it and are happy to acknowledge it. Um, and I think it's really important for um, preventing other things that do happen to a lot of people who have PTSD, like they get dependent on things like alcohol and, and cannabis and whatnot as a way of dealing with their trauma, um, which I would suggest is an unhealthy way of dealing with it. Um, and, you know, maybe going through a in an innovative therapy like that could help to prevent that from mm-hmm. happening. And again, that, that kind of reflects the, the multi-level aspect of mental illness as well, is that, you know... Um, People with PTSD, more likely to drink, might get dependent on that. There's all of these connections between diseases. Yeah. And then also uh, if they end up dependent on alcohol or drugs and it increases their risk of uh, physical diseases as well. So they're all connected. That's right. So trying to get to the root of the problem, the the initial kind of risk factor or the initial cause is... Often, you know, that's the challenge. People are often behaving a certain way to mask other things that are going on. And at the moment we understand that as diet and physical activity, basically. Um, Actually, 
which is really interesting because today there were some new guidelines brought out about um, diet and uh, originally things like uh, high-fat dairy and eggs all had limitations on them, um, but now it's come out today that it's it's okay to eat uh, full fat cheese and full fat and drink full fat milk and have eggs um, more than seven eggs a day. Uh, sorry, seven eggs a week is actually okay now. Mm. Um, so again, although we've got these ideas of primary prevention and what to tackle, it's always changing. Yeah, it's and it's changing because people go and research this stuff, don't they? Exactly. Uh, and like yeah, us, that's right. So that's one of the reasons we're doing what we do is to hopefully make things better, make the information better so that we're making, you know, better choices. Um, there was one more thing, that, mm-hmm. and it's not really something that happens a lot in mental illness, but it it was me thinking about a friend from school and a comment he made to me, um, I think we were probably about halfway through high school, maybe around year 10, and I remember we were out one night and one of us had bought a can of Diet Coke and he said to us, uh, I can't drink that because I run the risk of becoming mentally ill. And we all at the time were thinking, what's wrong with you? Like, why, why would you say something like that? That's crazy. I did a bit of digging around to, to years later to discover that there is actually a, a condition called phenylketonuria, which is a genetic metabolic disease. And phenylalanine is the substance that f- people with phenylketonuria have a problem metabolising. Uh, and... Aspartame, which is one of the chemicals in Diet Coke and, and other um, artificially sweetened beverages, uh, is metabolised into phenylalanine. And so they have to avoid this. And they also have other things in their diet that they have to, to moderate, things like starches and certain other um, uh, substances that can cause this condition to, to develop and progress. And, you know, some of the symptoms can, you know, lead to a depression disorder, anxiety, phobias, um, a decrease in positive emotions, etc. I thought it was a really interesting case study for um, some of the left-field things that can lead to mental illness that if you don't know about them and if, you hadn't, if my friend hadn't been tested for this, this gene, then he wouldn't have known that he couldn't have Diet Coke and we would have all, you know, been oblivious to it and years later he might have ended up with some sort of a mental disorder. Yeah, and it really shows that connection between um, genetic and environmental uh, influences as well. So um, there, there is typically a genetic component to, to most conditions, um, but that environmental influence can really impact what happens to you. Yeah. Yet another advert for doing research. That's right. <laughs> I mean, so, something as specific as that, you know? Like, yeah. And obviously genetics is an area which is and epigenetics, they're areas which are just constantly evolving and growing and arguably growing faster now than ever before as people have access to more data and they can run big analyses and whatnot. Yeah, I'm always impressed by the the epigenetics people. It's very impressive what Mm. they do, very, very interesting. Yeah, possibly they're going to end up being an essential part of almost any research that that involves humans because we're always going to have to account for genetics is yeah. one of the potential issues that we have to consider. Yeah, we all have genes. Yeah, <laughs> and, you know, which of those genes is possibly causing some of our illnesses, you know? But just because you have the gene doesn't mean that you get the disease as well. So that's yeah. the other thing is, like, you know, if you do get your, your genetics tested, doesn't mean you're going to get the disease. It's, again, 
a risk factor rather than yeah. a, a likely cause. And I think that came up in the, the screening podcast we did, yeah. you know, with uh, certain high-profile people getting um, double mastectomies because of a certain breast cancer gene that they had. Um, now, did you have anything further on prevention before we finish up? Um, I think I think we're all good. I think we've we've definitely covered primary prevention. I don't think we've covered too much about secondary and, and tertiary, but that's okay. We can cover that another day, I reckon. Um, yeah. Unless there's anything you want to mention no, now. I think for secondary and tertiary, there'll be opportunities when we look at specific illnesses yeah. where those are really core aspects of treating those illnesses. Um, you know, we'll cover them in more detail for later episodes. Yeah, I think um, a couple of the people or one of the people that I will be able to get from this cardiac conference will be able to cover some of the tertiary uh, prevention techniques for, for cardiovascular disease uh, because the people that I know are all doing similar things to me, um, but they're in the field, so they're doing randomised controlled trials and all those really cool things, uh, unlike me that just deals with a big data set. Um, so, uh, yeah, I should be able to cover some of that yeah. in the future. Well, you never know where you might end up in future as well. That's true. That is very true. <laughs> all right. Well, next week we've got a special guest on the we next do. episode, don't very we? Very exciting. Yeah, so one of our colleagues at the School of Population and Global Health, Dr Karen Martin is going to be on to talk about trauma-informed care principles and how it uh, can be used in certain situations like education and, and other places where you might find people who have experienced trauma that we've just been talking about. Yeah, it's a really good link into what we've just been talking about because it, hers is mostly to do with uh, uh, primary prevention, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. So she, Educating people. That's right. She's going to be working closely with the education department here in WA uh, to try and implement some of those principles in, in the, some of the schools. So I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, it's going to be lots of fun. Yeah. All right. But until then, uh, thanks very much for listening. As usual, um, we have our email address, which is meaningofhealth at outlook.com and our Twitter handle, which is at healthmeanswhat. Uh, and you can access the podcast on SoundCloud, which you already know because you've already downloaded it. That's right. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks very much, Courtney. And yeah, thank you. Yeah, we will speak to you all soon. All right, sounds good. See you later. The Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming. Thank you.